Coming up on today's show, it looks like Shanghai, or at least part of Shanghai, might be headed back into a lockdown. We'll find out what's going on there. Also, bad year for beekeepers in Alberta. Really bad. We'll find out why hives have been so decimated. And we'll talk about space junk. Boy, there's a lot of it, and it's causing big problems. We talked to Kelly Kreiba a while ago. Um, she's an Albertan who's uh, teaching in Shanghai, China, and another massive lockdown appears to be looming there. This Saturday, a district, now it's a district in Shanghai, it's not the whole city, but it's still about 3 million people. They're going to restrict it for what they, they're calling a mass testing effort. Um, just a week after the city finally started to see some restrictions being eased, restrictions that have been in place since March, but... Obviously, things didn't go as well as they were hoping, and now we're seeing this step back. So let's find out exactly what's going on. Kelly joins us now. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you chatting again. Hi, thanks for having me. So nice to be back. So tell us, you've got, I think it's about 10% of the population is going to be locked down again this Saturday. Are you in that group? Are you part of that 3 million that's going to be restricted once again starting? Well, it's probably today for you now. I am. I am one of the, the lucky few in that district, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Okay, so have you found out exactly, like, let's go back to what it was like last time we talked when it was back, you know, the the March lockdown or when it started in March. Um, That was really, really strict. You were basically confined to your residence, right? That is correct. So, yeah, beginning of March and then leading into April was the full city lockdown. Again, we were told it was for five days. And in my case, it was 60 one, 61 oh days until we were released, which was on June 1st, uh, just over a week ago. And like you said, um, we were not allowed to leave only to conduct COVID tests. Unbelievable. Okay. So you've got a week ago, you start seeing restrictions leave. <laughs> what was that like? What was it? Was it wide open again? Or was it just sort of incremental? How did things change on June 1st? It was bizarre because up until June 1st, we were still not allowed to leave our apartment complex. So then we got the news from the government saying, yeah, June 1st, we're open. Everything's open. Everything, you know, is is going back to normal. And of course, we were hesitant because it was a complete 180 from how we were living. So I woke up that morning early um, and I got my dog and we went for a walk And I approached the gate and I was really nervous. Like, am I going to get yelled at? Am I going to get shouted out for for trying to leave? And sure enough, they let me walk through. All the barricades were removed. And I got to see a street (laughs) for the first time in quite a long time. It was incredible. Yeah, very mixed emotions going from complete shutdown to complete freedom. It almost... Yeah, it was very, very strange. So I imagine, like you say, I mean, that's a bit of an adjustment. And I imagine over the course of four, five, six days, you start to get a little used to that. You start to, okay, this is what life used to be like. I remember this, only to find out that you're going back into whatever you're going into on Saturday. How did that news break? And how did you feel when you heard that? Oh, I mean, it's it's really tough because, again, they said, yeah, we're open. Go ahead, June 1st. Um 
but we still have to do COVID testing within 72 hours. So each resident in Shanghai has a QR code that is attached to our cell phones, our phone number, and it's also linked to my passport number. And in order to get into any public place, so shopping malls, uh, hair salons, public transport, you need to show proof that you've done a COVID test within 72 hours. So it's freedom, but you know we still do have those limitations. Luckily, the city has opened thousands of COVID testing sites. So we have one that's about a 10-minute walk from our residence. So every couple of days, we are expected to go line up and receive a test in order to keep up our freedom. Now, that's what the we're being told. This is uh, a restriction or a lockdown being put in place for mass testing. So do you have any idea mm-hmm. how long this... Um, I don't know, lockdown is going to last? Is it, is it a one-day thing to get everybody tested? Is it a one-week thing? Do you have any idea at all? To my understanding, it's not just my district. Um, we read earlier today that it is nine out of 14 districts in the city oh, that boy, are doing okay. mass testing. Yeah. And um, to my understanding, again, it's just to ensure that um, we're okay to continue Okay. Um, being let out because, of course, if there is a spike in cases, that usually means that lockdowns do follow. And, of course, that is happening um, even now in some areas of the city. Mm -hmm. People are already locked down for 14 days. Okay. So hopefully it's just a testing regimen and and it won't end up being back for... I'm just getting some texts from (laughs) listeners that have some questions for you. And they're good questions. Like Marfa says, what does a person do day after day being (laughs) cooped up like that for as long as you were like... what, What was day a day life like when you were locked into your residence basically for two months? Oh, I'm, we had good days and we had bad days. Um, I'm living with my fiance and my dog, so I did have company. Thank goodness. If I was alone, yeah, it would imagine. be a much different story. Um, but again, I am teaching and we are doing live lessons. So my students, my middle school students, log into a program similar to Zoom and we teach, we follow the same timetable that they would in regular classes at school. So obviously that kept me uh, very busy throughout the day. And then (laughs) in the evenings, it's a lot of baking, cooking, um, (laughs) cleaning, uh, just video games, like anything to kind of keep your mind off of uh, (laughs) what's actually going on. It sounds it must be just torture. And a couple of people saying, "Why did you stay? Why didn't you come home? Why didn't you get out of there?" But I mean, like you say, you've got ties to that that city, right? You've got people there, and you've got classes, and yeah. I mean, I can't just up and leave. I I've been here for five years. This is has been my home, and I think people don't understand the extent of a lockdown. Even if I wanted to go home, there is no public transport. There are no taxis. Everybody is locked down. I would have to walk to the airport. Oh, boy. I would have to walk a couple hours. <sighs> and again, there's one flight a week yeah. usually. And if everyone's trying to leave, there's no no spots either. So it's, <laughs> I can't even if I wanted to. That is absolutely crazy. Cass wants me to ask you about unboxing videos um, on Instagram. Now, <laughs> these are the government rations that get sent, and you're we've all seen the unboxing videos, but you're doing them with government food rations? Yeah, so to keep myself busy and to kind of bring some humor into the situation, I, like, 
pretended to be like an Instagram influencer yeah. <laughs> and you, you know how they receive um, free PR packages. And I would do like a live unboxing of my government rations <laughs> and do like my live reaction to all sorts of stuff that we were sent. Um, I did learn new vegetables that I had never seen before. So uh, that was kind of neat. And again, just bringing that humorous side to a really, really difficult situation. Yeah, got to do it. Got to do it. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. Uh, one last question here, and it's a good one. We talked about it before. I think I know the answer. Um, hey, Shay, was she able to take her dog out for a walk during the lockdown? You had a balcony set up, right? Yeah. So days before the lockdown, we ordered some like turf, some grass, and we had to lay it down on our balcony. And that is what my dog used for weeks on end. So we sprinkled some leaves on it. So it kind of smelt like the outdoors. And that was it. Lockdown is lockdown. Um, I said last one I lied. How tense are people with these reports of more restrictions? More, I mean, I imagine there is zero patience left among the public for any more of this stuff. When you hear about new things happening on Saturday and this district being subjected to this and that, are, are people just right on edge and, and ready to lose their minds? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. This is tough for anyone, especially foreigners yeah uh, again we we have really limited resources on knowing what is going on um and even nationals this, this is hard for anybody and it's very frustrating so tensions are high um so it's going to be very interesting to see how these next few weeks play out for sure yeah hopefully it goes well uh kelly thank you so much for your time as always great insight really enjoy chatting thank you Thank you so much for having me again. You bet. We'll, we'll chat soon. That's Kelly Kreiba, who is an Edmontonian who's teaching in Shanghai. As you heard, she's been there for five years. Lockdown in March. And when we're talking, to, I mean, a lot of us here complained and whined about, you know, uh, public health orders and restrictions and things like that. We didn't see anything remotely close to what we're talking about here. Uh, as you heard, confined to her residence with government rations for like two, two and a half months. Uh, it finally started being lifted just last week, June the 1st, and lasted 10 days. And now, uh, you know, it's not going back to exactly what it was last time around, but again, they're mass testing and, and worried about further restrictions. So, I love bees. I like bees. I think I think most of us have come to the understanding now that bees are good, right? We don't... I think when we, at least when I was a kid growing up, bees didn't get the love they get now. I think some of the education around bees has been successful. Still hate hornets, still hate wasps, yellow jackets, whatever you want to call them. Can't stand them. They're jerks. But I got a lot of love for bees. And I think most people do. But unfortunately, our bees are continuing to struggle, especially in this part of the world. Like, really struggle. It's been, it's, it's tough times in the beekeeping community. So uh, let's get an update on just what's going on and how bad it might be. We're going to chat with Connie Phillips now, who is the executive director of the Alberta Beekeepers Commission. Connie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. So, I mean, I keep hearing it's bad. It's been a horrible winter. How bad is it for beekeepers this spring? Well, um, in Alberta, in particular, it's we're looking at anywhere from 40 to 60% loss across the province. So that's enormous. Wow. Typically, you'd be wanting anywhere, what would be considered acceptable is anywhere from 15 to 20%. So this is exceptional. And even looking at 50% losses 
um, the total number of commercial hives in the province sits at around 300,000. So that means we're down potentially about 150,000 hives. And, so you- and why that begins to matter is there's a lot of different reasons why that's really painful. And one is, of course, um, there'll be significantly less honey produced. Yeah. The second reason is, of course, is honeybees are, are critical pollinators of 21 different agricultural crops that are grown across the country. Two in particular, Alberta honeybees pollinate our canola seed, hybrid canola seed. And a lot of our bees are off, often go to, to BC to pollinate BC blueberries. So there's potentially, well, there already is a shortage of bees to pollinate uh, small fruits and orchard fruits. And we're starting to get concerned that there may not be enough bees to pollinate hybrid canola. What's interesting about this year is this is not only a struggle in Alberta, but this is happening across the country. And I I think I have not been involved with this industry for a a very long time. But um, in my experience and what I see from the data that we have in our files, this is the first time this has been a significant issue coast to coast. Interesting. Okay, so let me just dig into a couple of those issues there. First of all, the winter I hear was particularly bad. Now, explain to me what a bee does in the winter. I mean, I'm going to admit, do they hibernate? Do they, I mean, they don't migrate, obviously, but what does a bee do in the winter? That's a great question. They do not hibernate. And so going into winter, and this is one of the factors that uh, we believe uh, had an impact on them coming out of winter in good shape, uh, one of the factors was actually the the heat dome that we dealt with last summer, and and by July there was no forage for the bees to feed on. Okay. So beekeepers had to buy food for the bees to eat, and and going into winter, a typical process or or protocol would be, you feed your bees, you basically feed them till they stop eating, and then you put some additional food in the hive, you wrap them up. And they're in there until the winter ends. And bees are, it's super interesting because they they form a cluster. There might be fifty to 60,000 bees in one colony inside a hive, and they form a cluster around the queen, and they they keep the hive warm. So it's, and then the bees, the worker bees, kind of rotate through that job as the outside ones get cooler. They move to the inside, and the, in, the ones that have been inside move towards the outside. So they work really hard all through the winter, um, keeping the hive warm. But they they typically, unless it gets above about 15 to 16 degrees Celsius, they will stay inside the hive. They won't come out if it's cold. So they so what gets to be critical is there's enough food in there to get them through the winter. And because our winter was really cold late, yeah, and some were going in in poor condition because there wasn't enough forage. And um, so the extra few weeks in the spring when we, we were all grumbling about how cold it was, they too were struggling. And, and then at that point, they can begin to starve. The That's... other factor that affected their health significantly is with the early spring we had a year ago and the long fall, there's a parasite called varroa mite that also likes that warm weather. And if the bees are doing well, the varroa mite does well. And varroa weakens bees, and it also acts like a vector for other diseases. And so there were a lot of hives just completely infested with varroa going into winter, and so they just didn't, the bees just couldn't survive 
kind of that double whammy of bad weather and and varroa mite. Unreal. So now what are the options if you're a beekeeper and you've lost 40, 50, 60 percent or more of your hive? Can you replenish that? I mean, can you can you, for lack of a better way of putting, can you go on Amazon and order bees or can you can you bring in new bees? I mean, can you buy bees? You can buy bees and and across Canada bees. Well, bees are imported into Canada from three countries currently that are allowed to import worker bees. And those countries are Australia, New Zealand, and Chile. Um, Since COVID, importing bees from those countries has become very problematic just because of uh, airlines not being willing to fly them. The first year of COVID, no airlines were flying anyway, so no bees came in. So your question uh, about can you order bees? Yes, you can. (laughs) There's there's, a... couple of our beekeepers in this province, they bring the bees in, you place an order with them okay. in the winter, and hopefully you get what you need. But the losses are so high this year, uh, demand outstrips supply by probably two to three times. Oh boy. The other source of bees is we do have a few people across the country who breed bees themselves. But again, the domestic, fly, the domestic supply is not enough to meet demand. So we've been pushing um, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to allow us to bring bees in from the United States. And in particular, there's a region of Northern California that's a safe zone where we currently bring in queens from. And we would like to be able to bring in bees from this same region. I mean, that makes sense. But what, what are the concerns? Is it is it disease? Is it what about you know like Africanized honey or killer bees? Or I mean, what are the concerns in terms of where you can and can't bring bees in from? I can tell you've been doing your homework. Um, yeah, there, <laughs> I think there's four primary concerns that CFIA has. Um, one is with varroa mites, and like every other living critter, they. It, they evolve and become resistant to the different types of treatments that are available to, to kind of keep them at bay. Uh, the second thing is, as you mentioned, Africanized honeybees, which is a subspecies of the European honeybee. And uh, another concern is another little critter called small hive beetle. And the fourth is um, a bacteria that is resistant to antibiotics. Hmm. So, so those are legitimate concerns. However, those are things that, based on the National Honeybee Health Survey that was conducted, completed in 2017, that are existing in the country already. And what it fails, that concern or that concern of that risk, fails to take into account beekeepers' ability to mitigate that risk or reduce it. And there's lots of tools to do that. And in this particular area, Northern California, where because it's a containment zone that's been approved by the USDA and the World Animal Health Organization, those risks are so minimal, they're close to zero. Okay. So, I mean, there are options here, but like you say, it's the old supply and demand, which we're dealing with in so many areas right now. But uh, I, I really appreciate the update, uh, Connie. Thanks so much. And, and we'll check in throughout the summer and see if things get any better. Is it possible that the hives can replenish on their own, or do, do you need outside help? Do you need to bring in other bees? There's a couple of ways you can replenish hives, and and one is called splitting. So a beekeeper can take a strong, healthy hive, 
and they basically they split it in two by a second queen and and those hives then over a period of a few weeks, three to four weeks, they really take off and then you have two complete hives. Okay. It's a slower process, but it's another way to uh, replenish bees. Gotcha. Okay. Connie, great information. Very educational and informative. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. That is Connie Phillips, who is the Executive Director of the Alberta Beekeepers Commission. Space. The final frontier. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. That's how you can tell we're serious. We've made official space opening production elements now. And we're doing them for other elements, too. We're doing them for science and stuff. But today we're talking about space. And we talked about this briefly a while ago. Um, Space junk. I mean, there is just a ton of it up there, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So to help us try and make sense of it all, we're going to chat with Dr. Morba Jaw, who is an associate professor at the University of Texas, the chief scientific advisor to the space tracking startup Privateer. Dr. Jaw, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. How's it going, my brother? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. What was your grad song? Do you even remember? You know, I think... Yeah, it was it was probably like uh, some Whitney Houston thing or something. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's the worst. They got to do away with grad songs. Okay, let, let's talk about space junk here. I mean, it it just continues to grow, right? Like in terms of the junk and this, how busy is orbit around Earth right now? Yeah, look, I mean, we are currently tracking about fifty thousand things, uh, ranging in size from cell phone to the space station out of which 5,000 work and everything else is garbage. Okay. And it, now what's the deal? It just basically, it's anything that's not used anymore. It's, you know, it's rockets, whatever the case. And it just, it just, what was the plan? Just leave it there. It's just going to sit there. (laughs) So here's the thing. Um, Every single satellite that we launch, it's destiny is to become junk. Cause at some point the thing stops working and if it's sufficiently low, uh, you know, several hundred kilometers above the surface, then eventually it will, like, re-enter and burn up in the atmosphere, hopefully. But if it's much higher than that, like over a 1,000 kilometers of altitude, pretty much stays up there forever. And so it's, yeah, it's just, it's a bad deal, man. And, and when things <laughs> stop working, we just keep on launching stuff. Well, yeah. this, this is the thing. Like, humans have been going to space for over 60 years now, but most of the junk that's up there has gone up there in the past, what, two, three, four years? Yeah, so interestingly enough, we, there's like this new kind of uh, gold rush or bonanza in space. And, um, you know, when I started doing this whole tracking stuff in Earth orbit back in like 2006, there was only like 1,200 working satellites. And now there's like 5,000, uh, half of which are owned by Elon. Yeah, exactly. That Starlink system he put up there, right? Yeah. Yep. Now, all the stuff that's up there. I mean, I, I've seen stories where International Space Station um, residents, I don't know what you call them, they were told to be prepared. They might get smacked into. There was just something last week that almost got ran into. Are, are collisions becoming inevitable at this point? Collisions collisions between really small things and, and stuff that we care about happen, I think, frequently. Um, but they're not uh, cataclysmic. Yeah. What we want to avoid, yeah, so what we want to avoid, right, is 
uh, people losing their lives and stuff like that, or satellites providing critical services from stopping the work. And these things are happening, but I, I can tell you that it doesn't help when people blow up their own satellites on orbit like Russia did in November. That's not so good. Yeah, tell us about that incident. That caused all kinds of problems that continue to this day and will for some time. What happened there? It's crazy. It's like, you know, it's, it's this idea of doing the saber rattling and uh, showing some sort of, I don't know, superpower might kind of, you know, flexing muscles on orbit and just, you know, blowing up one of their own satellites in an orbit that now uh, is a hazard to and, and, and threatens the lives of, of astronauts and even some cosmonauts, their own people on the space station yeah. and these sorts of things. It's, it's dumb. It's, it's a really stupid, out of many stupid things, that's definitely <laughs> one of them. Okay. Now you're working on trying to track all this stuff. Is that what Privateer does? Yeah. Well, so what Privateer is trying to do is, um, it's, it's trying to be like a, a platform company, kind of like, you know, iPhone comes with certain apps and, and, and basically making uh, data and information available for, for people that want to develop cool applications that can help humanity. And that's what Privateer wants to do is, is, is be that for humanity. But some of the initial apps that we're deploying are things related to, you know, helping orbital safety and, mm-hmm. and helping with collision risk and that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask. Like if you're somebody who's launching a satellite or you've got, you're making plans to launch a satellite, how big of a factor is sort of trying to determine, okay, where's it going to go and how's it going to avoid running into some of the junk that's flying around? And can that even be done? So it's a big concern that the, so the bad news is that it can't be done with a lot of accuracy and precision so part of it is relying on the strategy of hope that you don't run into something. Um, there's Seriously, the strategy of hope? Space. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm serious, man. Don't you love that? It doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy inside? Well, yeah. exactly. It's crazy. I mean, these guys can actually land a rocket on an asteroid, and they're sending things up into near orbit with a wing and a prayer and their fingers crossed. Pretty much, yeah. Craziness, craziness. Now, in terms of what could go wrong, like you mentioned, you know, life-sustaining services that we rely on satellites for. I mean, how realistic is it that one day some piece of junk is going to collide with some piece of um, space technology that we rely on down here on Earth? Yeah, very, very realistic. I mean, everything from, you know, global navigation satellite systems that, um, you know, tell us you know, go, here's how you get from point A to point B and, and timing services to climate change uh, monitoring. Um, satellites are providing unique data to help us understand things like, you know, wars in Ukraine and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's very likely that any one of these satellites gets schwacked. Uh, that's the technical term, gets schwacked by one of these pieces of junk um, and then stops working. And then, you know, we, we don't have these things sitting on shelves just ready to, like, launch and, 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 and uh, you know, replace. So that's the problem. Um, okay. Uh, questions from listeners, and a couple of them saying the same thing. Explain orbit to us if you can. Um, does everything go in the same direction? If it's locked in position, is it locked in position, or will it move? I mean, or can you pretty get a pretty good idea of, okay, this is where it is, this is where it's going, and this is how fast it's moving? Yeah, I love this question. So I think the, the, way, the best way to think about an orbit something in orbit is in a constant state of free fall. So imagine that you and I, we're all in, in, in a room together, and the room gets pushed off the edge of a cliff but never hits the ground. That's what an orbit is. And the, and the reason it doesn't hit the ground is because it has enough 
horizontal speed that it keeps on missing. So an orbit is something that's always falling and always missing, uh, you know, the main, the main body. And so, yeah, I mean, if we, if whenever we launch something, we put something into an orbit, give it the right horizontal speed. We have a, we have a good idea of where the thing is in general, yeah. but very accurately we don't because other things start influencing motion. And, and does everything move in the same direction, or is it all going in different directions, or is it sort of everybody's doing the same dance? So the problem is that things in the same orbit are going the so So any given, uh, any given orbit, think of it as a highway. It, it's, it's all one direction in that orbital highway. But the problem is we have highways that cross each other, and, and there are no overpasses. They, like, literally cross each other. And so... So there's no stoplights and stuff. That's the problem. It, it, it's crazy when you think about it, Doc, because we're at the beginning. I mean, there's just going to be more and more and more and more stuff headed up there. I mean, someone's going to... Are people working on a plan to say, okay, we're going to, I don't know, clean it up or, or come up with some way of making sure this doesn't turn into a catastrophe? Yeah. Look, 93 countries signed uh, by consensus this document... Uh, 21 guidelines for long-term sustainability at the United Nations uh, Committee on Peaceful Use of Outer Space just a couple years ago. So now what has to happen is each one of these 93 countries needs to make these guidelines, you know, law in their own country, and then hold their own citizenry, you know, responsible, uh, uh, you know, accountable for for following that. And if somebody doesn't, then they should, you know, do something about it. So that's what needs to happen next. Okay. Dr. Draw, thank you so much for your time today. Great discussion. I appreciate it very much. Love sharing with you, my brother. Okay, we'll do this again. Thank you, sir. All right, cheers. That's Dr. Morba Jaw, who is uh, an associate professor at the University of Texas and the chief scientific advisor to the space tracking startup Privateer. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 